seven o'clock. This is a Sky News question and answer special on the war in Ukraine. All through the day, we've been gathering your questions and we'll be doing our very best to answer them in the next hour. But first, the headlines. Curfew in Kiev. The mayor restricts movement around the city as he prepares for difficult moments ahead. Everyone is angry. I talk to the people. They don't want to leave. Fine for her defiance, the Russian journalist who disrupted primetime television news to speak out against the war appears in court. Boris Johnson defends his trip to Saudi Arabia and says Western nations must not be hooked on Russian oil and gas. Vladimir Putin over the last uh, years has been like a, a pusher, uh, feeding an addiction uh, in uh, Western countries to his hydrocarbons. The UK sanctions hundreds more wealthy Russians, including the former president, Dmitry Medvedev. Good evening. Welcome to a Sky News question and answer special on the war in Ukraine. Coming up, the military expert and former director general of the Royal United Services Institute, Professor Michael Clark, will be here throughout the next hour to answer your questions on the conflict. But first, the mayor of Kiev has told Sky News that the capital is the heart of Ukraine and will be defended in its darkest hours. Vitaly Klitschko has warned that the next few days will be a test for the city's defences and has imposed a 35-hour-long curfew from tonight until Thursday. Five people were killed in Russian attacks in residential areas this morning. Sky Special Correspondent Alex Crawford reports now from Kiev. This was another step up in attacks inside the capital. More homes hit, more lives lost. They've been so resilient. But this is really taking a toll. Tears, yes, but a steely toughness too. We'll keep ourselves together, he says, tears on his cheeks. We will remain strong. The city was roused early again with multiple strikes in all points around the capital, and they're expecting a lot more over the next few days. The sound of battle is unavoidable now in the capital, but this army chaplain called it an unequal fight. This isn't war, he says. This is international terrorism. War is armies against armies, but when armies attack civilians, this is international terrorism. The mayor called it a dangerous moment and immediately slapped a 35-hour curfew on the capital. How would you describe the spirit of the Ukrainian people and your feeling about this? The spirit right now, everyone is angry. I talk to the people. They don't want to leave. And this activity bring much more energy to everyone and everyone understand don't want to leave want to defend defend our city they are meeting this onslaught with fortitude cleaning out their broken homes and just getting on with it some have sent their families and children outside kiev because they've known the russian military was homing in on this city Oh, these are all the children's your toys, yeah, yeah, the yeah. children's things. All. But the war has reached right into their living rooms and balconies now. 
My parents still in uh, Kiev, uh, living on left bank of uh, Kiev. My sister too. Mm. But we still there. You're still here. Yeah. yeah. I'm not afraid, because I know it's, uh, I believe our victory. The residents know their homes and their lives are collateral damage in the battle for this, the prize, their capital city, but they're not bound. I don't think I am brave, but I don't want to leave my city, I don't want to leave my country, and uh, if it will need be, I will uh, take a shoot to take a gun and uh, go go to fight and uh, kill Russians. The capital's mayor expects more of this and has warned that Russian activity is expected to substantially increase over the next 48 hours and he's urged his fellow residents to be wary. He and his brother believe the Russian military is very close right now and they've no intention of going anywhere. You can throw a stone and hit a Russian soldier. I'm not even kidding. And besides, he points out, they have increasingly few options now. We have no other choice but defend our city, our capital, and our country. What is the other choice here? We didn't invade anyone. They came to our home and killing our men, women, and children. There's a deepening frustration amongst Ukrainians as time runs out for any concrete outside help with soldiers, civilians, and journalists being killed and injured. This must be devastating for anyone who comes from this area. Um, what, are you, what are your thoughts about how much the international community is, is doing? It is not just devastating. This is war. Behind me, a building where civilians were killed with the Russian rocket, and this is not just the first and not the last. It doesn't matter who you are on the Ukrainian soil now. With a press bench, a little girl, a boy, an adult, man or woman, or an old person, you're a target from Russia, from Russian army. But so many of Kiev's residents refuse to be intimidated despite it all. Come and have coffee with us, she's saying to our crew. When will it be open? She takes barely a heartbeat to think about this. Uh, Soon, she says. Even with the Russian military closing in on them, their spirit seems unbreakable. Alex Crawford, Sky News, in Kiev. Well, now to the situation right across Ukraine and another attempt to send aid into the besieged city of Mariupol appears to have been unsuccessful. However, the city council says 2,000 cars were able to leave the city. Russia says the entire Kherson region is now under their control. Forces are believed to be preparing to advance on Odessa next, Ukraine's crucial economic hub. More than 60 Russian airstrikes hit Kharkiv last night and officials say Dnipro Airport's runway was destroyed in an attack. To the west, 19 people are now confirmed dead following a strike on a TV tower in the Rivne region. And the Red Cross reports buses with civilians on board have left the Sumi region today via humanitarian corridors. 
Well, Sky's Alistair Bunkle is in Lviv uh, and joins me now. And uh, Alistair, first of all, uh, a high-level uh, political delegation uh, heading to the capital tonight. Yeah, the leaders of Poland, uh, Slovenia and uh, the Czech Republic, uh, fellow Eastern European states, have arrived in uh, the capital, uh, Kiev, uh, this evening. They arrived here by train. Uh, they've come here despite the capital being under bombardment. I was speaking to a Ukrainian diplomat within the last few minutes, and she says that it is very, very noisy there at the moment, but they have come here in an active war zone to show an act of solidarity to the Ukrainian president, Zolomir uh, Zelensky, and to make sure that they see it for themselves. And I think that is uh, something that we haven't seen from any Western leader for, well, I can't remember the last time that a Western leader went to a war zone like this, but it will hopefully, I, I imagine, shape their um, view of what is going on here when they can uh, see and hear what's going on on the ground, and we'll see how that shapes uh, the EU's response to all this. The NATO Secretary General as well speaking today, Jens Stoltenberg, uh, warning about uh, Russia's uh, rhetoric around chemical and biological weapons. Uh, Russia has suggested that the United States is funding various biological labs across Ukraine, including three around this city of Lviv. And the fear is that that is a false flag, um, or at least they're laying the ground for a false flag operation. They are making absurd claims about biological labs and chemical weapons in Ukraine. This is just another lie. And we are concerned that Moscow could stage a false flag operation, possibly including chemical weapons. And Alistair, uh, President Zelensky uh, making some more comments about NATO today, of course, could have a bearing on the, on the peace discussions. Yeah, big time. Uh, Zelensky is saying that Ukraine has to accept that it's not going to become a member of NATO uh, anytime soon. Now, anyone who knows the NATO membership process will say that has been evident for a long time, despite what President Putin has said about the threat of Ukraine wanting to join NATO. The fact is, if you want to join the alliance, you cannot have any border or territorial disputes, which means what has been going on in the Donbass region of the eight year, over the last eight years would have prevented Ukraine from joining NATO anyway. Uh, Zelensky has, up till now, uh, quite steadfastly maintained Ukraine's uh, right to join NATO if it wanted to. But he's kind of changed his tune. And we wonder whether that is part of the negotiation, part of the, the diplomatic process that is going on behind the scenes, and whether it could form uh, the pillar of some sort of uh, ceasefire deal uh, if he can try and convince the rest of Ukraine that joining NATO is not the be-all and end-all. Will that uh, satisfy Vladimir Putin? Will that lead to Russian troops finally uh, retreating from the country. Alistair Bunkle in Lviv, thank you very much. Well, now, uh, we have had hundreds of questions about the war in Ukraine, and the security and defence analyst, Michael Clark, is here again with me to answer as many of them as we can. Uh, welcome back, Michael. Good to see you. Let's dive straight in, because there are so many people having so, so many concerns. And uh, we start with Anne's question. There it is. And uh, it's, uh, well... 
pretty eternal question about this war. What will it take, if anything, for NATO to get involved militarily with the crisis? Because I suppose NATO is already involved, just not directly. Absolutely. NATO is already deeply in this crisis. It's supplying Ukraine, pretty obviously, and it's doing all it can to reinforce its own borders and put pressure on the Russians and President Putin. What I suspect and is getting at is, will NATO troops go into Ukraine to fight? And what I guess her question may think may, may be about is if Putin used chemical weapons, would that be a threshold that we would cross? And I think the answer is no. I mean, President Putin at the moment is trying to goad NATO into doing something so he can say, look, NATO is attacking me. He's trying to actually make NATO overreact. And NATO is being very careful to help as much as it can in Ukraine without overreacting and making this what, crisis What, what worse. evidence have you noticed of that? Goading. Was that attack near the border with Poland? Was that yes. part of it? <clears throat> well, he, he keeps threatening his uh, nuclear forces. He's even threatening that there might be a, uh, a, a nuclear spillage. Um, the, we, today, uh, a, a Russian drone went into Polish territory and came out again. Another Russian drone went into Romanian territory, came out again. Carefully calculate, these are surveillance drones, they weren't armed, but both of them invaded NATO territory for a short time. And he's, he's also made it clear that he will attack NATO convoys or NATO equipment once it's over the Ukrainian side of the border. The implication is he might even start to attack when it's on the Polish side of the border, which would be a huge challenge to NATO. Indeed, and I suppose this includes a no-fly zone, which would have to be enforced by NATO aircraft. Yeah. Putin could then go back to the Russian people and say, see, I told you so, NATO is attacking Russia. Yes, he's been saying publicly since 2008 that NATO is a threat to Russia. And uh, he's looking for evidence that he can show to people that, look, I was right. Look, look what they're now doing. So he's trying to extend this war. It, it's, it's partly the old Hitlerian principle, actually, that the, the way to recover from one huge strategic blunder is to make another somewhere else. Because that throws everything up in the air, and as the cards land, you try, you think you might get a better hand. And the danger is that President Putin's in a real mess with this war. He might try to retrieve it by making it into a bigger war so that he can manipulate it in some way. OK, well, let's uh, talk more about uh, that NATO equipment that uh, is being given in great quantities to Ukraine. And uh, this uh, a question from... Buster, uh, about the aircraft, well, it was mentioned at the very start of the war. Is there any way Poland can get the MiG fighters to the Ukrainian Air Force? Now, we know that the Polish have tried this, but the Americans have rejected it. Yeah. I mean, what Poland did uh, this time last week is that they said, we'll send our uh, MiG-29s to Rammstein, which is the biggest American base. We'll give them to the in Americans Germany. in Germany. And then the Americans can give them to uh, the Ukrainians. And then the Russians can take it up with the Americans. The Americans <laughs> didn't know about this. It's one of the few cases where NATO was not particularly united. It's the only case, really, so far. <clears throat> and the Americans immediately backed off. And the view is that it would, it would provoke the Russians to the point where it would pull NATO in. So if, if, if NATO aircraft, as it were, were being flown by Ukrainian pilots in, uh, air, in Ukrainian airspace, the Russians, again, might take that as an excuse to say, you know, we can take action inside Poland because you actually supplied your aircraft to our adversaries. It's, it's, I wouldn't rule it out as this crisis goes on, but for the time being, NATO is not going to have MiG-29s uh, flying inside Ukraine. Let's examine the issue now of, um, as we hear from NATO itself, uh, rather than Putin getting less NATO, that's his ambition, he's going to get more NATO, and it's encapsulated in uh, this next question coming up from Bob. There it is. How likely is it that Finland would apply to join NATO, and how would Russia 
respond. I mean, not just Finland, those um, those non-NATO yeah. countries, countries like like Sweden, and of course Finland, Finland's fought uh, a bit like Ukraine, fought Russia on its own in the past, the then USSR. Fam famously, the Winter War of 1939-40, where they did incredibly well, but ultimately lost to Russian numbers. And Finland has, has pursued a very careful line ever since 1945 of being uh, neither aligned one way or the other, being careful about what Russia, what Russia thought, not provoking Russia, but being Western in every other respect. <clears throat> Finland has never wanted seriously to join NATO. In, in 2017, 53% of the population who were polled said, no, no, we don't want to join NATO. 2017. This year, two weeks ago, 53%, exactly the same number, say, now we do want to join NATO. Now, this time, there was a bigger number of don't knows. There was about 8 and 90% don't knows. But the fact is, there's been a swing in public opinion in Finland to say, actually, I think we do need to come into NATO at some point in the future. And Finnish politicians are going out of their way. I mean, the, one of the leaders of the opposition was writing only today in the Financial Times saying the time has come for us to come off the fence because Russia is not just a threat to us, it's a threat to European security. So the chances of Finland applying for NATO membership are now really quite high. So how do you like that, Mr Putin? Yeah, uh, just that broader point about more NATO, whether more countries join or not, the fact is that whatever way this conflict lands, NATO is going to reinforce that eastern flank as much as it can over the next months and years. Yeah. It may not last, but Europe has rediscovered itself since the 24th of February. The EU has been far more effective than anyone thought likely. NATO has been far more united and cohesive and tough than anyone thought likely. Europe is a different animal. This, this last three weeks. The challenge will be, is, will it still be a different animal in six months' time? We'll see. But at the moment, I think Mr Putin, like most of the rest of us, to be honest, have been surprised by how strong the Western reaction has been and how quick and effective it has been. Well, uh, you touched there, Michael, on the fact that uh, Putin might try to expand this yeah. conflict. So let's uh, bring in... Well, what was unthinkable, it seems, only a few weeks ago, now it's certainly not the uh, issue of uh, the nuclear threats, uh, the chilling nuclear threats made by Russia. And uh, this one, Carrie, says, if Russia does hit the nuclear button, where are, the like where are they likely to target? Would they, be, would they initially be on the, on the battlefield within Ukraine, so to speak, or would, the, would there be a first strike? Yeah. I think we have to say, Dermot, we, we are a long, long, long way from this. But uh, yeah. presumably in the Pentagon, throughout the, the right. capital, people worry about the, the NATO, it. Yeah. But, but yeah. the planning is going on, is it? Len Lenin famously said, nothing happens for decades, then decades happen in days. That's where we are now. So things are happening very quickly, but we're still a long way from this. Now, the, the Russians have a nuclear policy which integrates nuclear weapons right down to the lowest levels of their forces. We, we don't in the West. We keep our nuclear weapons quite separate to our forces. But the Russians use them on the battlefield, or they train to at least, so that if, if there were a nuclear use, it is overwhelmingly likely, if it were to happen, that it would be on the battlefield somewhere. It's plausible, if we're in this crazy world, that it might be on the battlefields of Ukraine or it might be over the border in Poland or Romania, which would be, a, which would be an Article 5 triggering of NATO. And then we're into really serious... But, but I mean, just this on the battlefield, I mean, it's a glib phrase, but there isn't actually a battlefield no. in Ukraine. We're not seeing, you know, massed armies of tanks fighting no. each other. It's a, it's, a, it's a very complex war. It is. Put in fields and bushes and forests. That's right. I mean, and, the, the, you know, Russian nuclear weapons were designed as battlefield weapons for Russian armies that were moving forward in a more conventional way in Western Europe and also to deter Western forces from using our 
slightly bigger and more developed nuclear forces, which are, a, there's a big gap between our conventional and our nuclear. In Russia, there's no gap. If Russia were to use the, its strategic nuclear forces, its, its rockets and its submarine-launched weapons, then you're talking about wholesale nuclear war. And again, we are a long, long, long way from that. Well, where are they likely to strike? You know, the question then encapsulates, would they be likely to, to strike a, a major city from one of their now adversaries in, in NATO, one of the capitals? Well, that would be a trigger for the closest the world has ever come to, an, to a straight nuclear war. Well, uh, let's uh, follow on from that. And you, you touched on it again there, Michael, uh, about the chain of command. Um, and you can tell us about how it works um, in our country, in the United States as well. How does the chain of command work for Putin to authorise a nuclear attack? Who else would need to be involved and support this within Russia? I suppose Natasha is asking, can he more or less do it himself? You know, actually, is yeah. there a, a button on the desk? Yeah, Natasha asks, asks a very good question. There's two uh, lines. If we're talking about battlefield nuclear weapons, because they're at low levels with, uh, with ground forces, then the chain of command is quite a long one. So it's from Putin to the general staff, down to the nuclear control uh, centres, down to the low levels of field commanders. So quite a lot of people have actually got to be involved in it. And on past experience, I think that those orders, if he gave them, wouldn't be obeyed. In, in terms of tactical nuclear weapons. However... Just, just expand on that, past experience. What well, uh, in Abel, Ar Abel Archer was a famous case. 1983, there was a, it was a big mistake. Uh, the Western Alliance gave the Russians the impression because of a technical glitch that the, an attack was building. The Russians took it really seriously and they started to arm all their nuclear weapons because they were so anxious. This was October 83. And a, a, a colonel, Lieutenant Colonel Stanislav Petrov, disobeyed orders. He said, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. And he delayed. He delayed long enough for them to find out that it was all a technical error. And there was a critical 40 minutes when Petrov said, I don't believe it. I, I am disobeying orders. He was the man who should have actually given the alert. And if, if they had armed... He was armed, a colonel. If, if, he was slow down. He was a colonel. If they had armed the nuclear weapons, that's detected then by the United States yeah. and others, and yeah. who knows what happened. We came very close to an accidental exchange of some sort in October 1983. And you think that, I mean, it would rely on that if Putin gave the order I, now? You think there are this, those within the Russian hierarchy, yeah. the chain of command, who... Yeah, because this, this is not a nuclear crisis. This is a crisis about something else. Cuba in 1962 was a nuclear crisis. It was about nuclear weapons, and there was a lot of, of, of tension in the nuclear force on both sides. But this isn't. So I don't, think, I don't think his orders would be obeyed. I'm just guessing, obviously. But there is another element here, which I think Natasha may be thinking about, is that if Putin gave orders to his submarine commanders, if he were ever to launch a strategic nuclear attack on the West using his nuclear weapon submarines, which are out in the Atlantic most of the time, or some of the time, um, that order goes straight from the president to the submarine commander. It doesn't pass through anybody else. So in that case, there might be a bigger case for saying maybe his orders would be carried out. would rather depend on the submarine commander. I think on that note, Michael, we need to, to take a, a break to, to draw a <laughs> breath and uh, absorb all that. You're watching the Sky News question and answer special on the war in Ukraine. Uh, as the Russian journalist who interrupted a state TV news programme last night is fined for her protest against the war, will answer your questions about how the conflict is being reported in Russia.
going on at the moment? Yes, I mean, Kiev has suffered some uh, what look like rocket attacks, which are extremely destructive. But the, the nature of the battle here is really revolving around some of the fierce fighting that's going on at places like Irpin, in the Obolon district, and on the other side, a place like Bovary. And the reason that these places are important for the battle for Kiev is the distance they are from the city centre. Because if the Russians get inside that area, then they are within 15 or 18 miles of the city centre, and then they can bring their battlefield artillery to play, their howitzers, which would make quite a difference. Uh, and what sort of weapons are they? What kind of damage can they do? Yeah, well, howitzers, are, are they look like tanks. They're based on a tank chassis, but they've got a pretty big gun on them. So the guns are uh, 152 millimeter uh, caliber guns. They're pretty fierce. They can fire six or eight rounds a minute old-fashioned stuff, old Cold War stuff. They're not all that accurate, but they certainly work. And if they can bring in their howitzers and surround two or three parts of the city with them, then they can threaten, threaten to reduce the city from the outside in in a matter of a week or two weeks, whatever it is. Let's take a look at the bigger picture, shall we, and talk about the air war. What, at the moment, are the basic dynamics of that? Well, the, the, the nature of the air war is that both sides have got quite a lot of aircraft in theatre. They find it quite difficult to engage together because the Russians have got to come from bases inside Russia. The Ukrainians have got to fly from Western Ukraine, which is quite long range for them, and all of their aircraft are dispersed in Western Ukraine. So it, 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 we expected the Russians to clear out the Ukrainian air system from the very beginning. We thought they'd do it within 48 hours, but actually the Ukrainians are still flying. It looks as if they've got about 50-odd aircraft of the 120 they started with still in the air, which is pretty astonishing. Yeah, and why hasn't Russia, with its superior numbers, started to dominate the airspace? Well, there's probably a lot of reasons for that. There seems to be. One is that Russian pilots only do about 100 hours in the cockpit flying every year. NATO pilots do at least 200 hours. The Russians don't seem to work on combined uh, air operations. So they don't do the complex air operations that you need to do if you're going to suppress enemy air defences and control the air. Again, NATO pilots do that all the time. All of their exercises are about combined air operations. And so the Russians are flying, you know, good aircraft, actually very top-of-the-range aircraft, but they're flying them only in ones and twos. They're flying at night. They're flying low because they fear air defences, and they seem to fear some of the aircraft which the Ukrainians have still got in the air. So there's a lot of reasons, but I have to say, military analysts are still scratching their heads as to why have the Russians not made more of their natural air superiority, but they haven't. Uh, there's also been, as we understand it, some successful operations by the Ukrainian forces on the ground. Yeah. The, uh, the Ukrainian Marines, it was a classic attack. They, they attacked the air base, the, the air base under, in, in Russian hands, just outside Mikhailov, and they destroyed at least 30 helicopters. That's confirmed. And some more vehicles. And they seem to have got away. It was a classic piece of commando work. And then yesterday, they created an attack on the airbase near Kershon. And it's not clear yet whether it was artillery or it was air attack by the Ukrainians. But they destroyed, again, about another 15 helicopters and a lot of vehicles. It seems that the, the Russians are not protecting their forward air bases very well. They're leaving their helicopters in a line. They're leaving stuff out. And the Ukrainians are taking the opportunities to actually uh, get hold of a lot of, of air, air assets, as we call them, on the ground. So they're destroying a lot of stuff while it's already on the ground. They've done really well.
how's everyone doing today? Monday, March 14th. March 14th, 2021. Just shout out all the Pisces. use a little inspiration. Can anybody use maybe some quick scriptures? Quick Bible quotes inspirational materials quote his divine power has granted us everything concerning life and goodliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to glory and virtue second peter 1 and 2 Quote, quote, neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things to come shall separate us from the love of God in Christ. Jesus, our Lord, Romans eight thirty eight through thirty nine.
quote. Then said Jehovah, I will watch over my word to perform it. Jeremiah 1 and 12. Quote, the Lord is for me. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Psalm 118 and 6. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases. Psalm 103, verses 2 and 3. Quote, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses to the uttermost part of the world. Acts 1 and 8. Whosoever shall save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. Matthew sixteen and 25. Quote, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for 
I am gentle and humble in heart and you shall find rest for your soul. Matthew 11 and 29 through 30. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Matthew 6 and 33. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths. Proverbs three and five through six. Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Matthew 28. In twenty He will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. Psalm 91 
I'm Amy Goodman. The FBI and New York Police Departments are facing new calls to finally open their records related to the assassination of Malcolm X, shot dead 56 years ago at the Audubon Ballroom in Harlem, February 21st, 1965. This comes after the release of a deathbed confession of a former undercover New York police officer who admitted to being part of a broad New York police and FBI conspiracy targeting Malcolm. In the confession, the former officer, Raymond Wood, who died last year, admitted he entrapped two members of Malcolm's security team in another crime, a plot to blow up the Statue of Liberty, just days before the assassination. On Saturday, Ray Wood's cousin, Reggie Wood, read the letter at a news conference at the Shabazz Center in Harlem. It was my assignment to draw the two men into a felonious federal crime so that they could be arrested by the FBI and kept away from managing Malcolm X's Autobahn ballroom door security on February 21st, 1965. In his letter, Raymond Wood also revealed he was inside the Audubon ballroom at the time of Malcolm's assassination. At least one other undercover New York police officer, Gene Roberts, was also inside after infiltrating the security team of the Organization of Afro-American Unity, the group Malcolm founded after leaving the Nation of Islam. Both officers, Wood and Roberts, were part of the Bureau of Special Services and Investigations, or BOSI, a secretive political intelligence unit of the NYPD nicknamed the Red Squad. Following Malcolm's assassination, police arrested three members of the Nation of Islam for his murder. But questions about the guilt of the men have lingered for decades. In his letter, Raymond Wood openly says one of the men, Thomas Johnson, was innocent and was arrested to, quote, protect my cover and the secrets of the FBI and the NYPD, unquote. Ray Wood's letter echoes claims in recent books by Manning Marable and Les Payne that some of Malcolm's actual assassins were never charged. In a moment, we'll be joined by Raymond Wood's cousin, Reggie Wood, who released his deathbed confession. But first, I want to turn to the words of Malcolm X himself speaking after his home in Queens was firebombed just a week before his assassination, February 14th, 1965. My house was bombed. It was bombed by the black Muslim movement upon the orders of Elijah Muhammad. Now, they had come around to, they had planned to do it from the front and the back so that I couldn't get out. They had, they, they covered the front completely, the front door. Then they had come to the back, but instead of getting in directly in the back of the house and throwing it this way, they stood at a 45 degree angle and tossed it at the window so it, it glanced and went onto the ground. And the fire hit the window and it woke up my second oldest baby. Uh, and then it, but the fire burned on the outside of the house. But had that fire, had that one gone through that window, it would have fallen on a six-year-old girl, a four-year-old girl, and a two-year-old girl. And I'm going to tell you, if it had done it, I'd taken my rifle and gone after anybody in sight. I would not wait. Cause in the, and I say that because of this. The police know the criminal operation of the black Muslim movement because they have thoroughly infiltrated it. Because they have thoroughly infiltrated it. Those are the words of Malcolm X right before his assassination, right after his home was firebombed in February of 1965. 
Uh, just days later, he was shot seconds after he took the stage at the Audubon Ballroom. We're joined now by Reggie Wood, the cousin of Raymond Wood, author of the new book, The Ray Wood Story, Confessions of a Black NYPD Cop and the Assassination of Malcolm X. Still with us, civil rights attorney Ben Crump, who attended that news conference uh, with um, Reggie Wood at the Audubon Ballroom, now the Shabazz Center, where Malcolm X was assassinated 56 years ago. Um, Reggie, thank you so much for joining us. You read parts of the letter um, this weekend. Talk about your cousin, um, Ray Wood, and what you understand happened. The conspiracy he alleges that he was a part of by the FBI and the New York Police Department to assassinate Malcolm X. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Um, Ray was was a complicated man. Uh, I think the, based on uh, his past experiences, he, he lived with a lot of uh, fear and caution on a daily basis, which he instilled in me over the past 10 years. But uh, Ray was a person that lived as a he lived he lived as a as a very quiet and and reserved person because of what he experienced he, he witnessed some horrible things firsthand and also realized that he was a part of it after the fact and so therefore um, ray was told by his handlers that not to repeat anything that he had seen or heard or he would uh, join Malcolm. Therefore, for 46 years, Ray separated himself from the family and um, in fear that he would put us in danger. Uh, Ray lived alone many years and he um, finally, in his final years, uh, when he realized that he was, uh, his cancer was uh, reoccurring, he wanted to reconnect with family because he didn't want to die alone. So uh, I volunteered to uh, move him to Florida so that my wife and I could take care of him and get him back and forth to his cancer treatments and things of that nature. And therefore, he trusted me enough to reveal this information and ask me not to uh, say anything until he passed away, but at the same time, not to allow him to take it to his grave. Um, you write in your book, uh, Reggie Wood, he'd spent years living in relative obscurity, wanting to ensure the cops wouldn't preemptively act to silence him. He also feared retribution from society, especially the black community. Ray was ashamed of what he'd been a part of and felt he'd betrayed his own people. Due to his lugubrious feelings about his actions and fear for what might be done to him in retaliation, this 2015 article deeply impacted Ray. And he's talking about this news coverage from February. Um, uh, he was talking about uh, the article by Garrett Felber in The Guardian that really laid out uh, your cousin's seminal involvement here and the FBI uh, police involvement in the assassination. Yes. Um that, that book really details everything that happened. I felt that um, after consulting with, with Mr. Crump, 
I was looking for the best way to put this information out there. I wasn't sure if it was safe to turn it over to authorities. Therefore, I just wrote everything that Ray told me in into this memoir and made it available to the world so that everyone would see it and, and hear it at the same time. And I think that's the best way to do it. It's a load off of my back because I'm no longer in fear of the government trying to quiet me as well. I want to turn to news coverage from February 1965 about the police orchestrated plot to blow up the Statue of Liberty. This was just days before Malcolm X's assassination. This might be news to a lot of people, even old time activists. In the video, Raymond Wood is seen being promoted for his role in that plot. The happy ending to the plot was written by a rookie policeman who had been on the force only eight months when he infiltrated the extremist group. His work led police to a quiet New York residential area where the dynamite had been hidden. Another arrested was Khalil Saeed, who police say went to the Statue of Liberty to buy a model and further the plot with the fourth conspirator, Walter Bowe. The hero cop, his face hidden for future undercover work, is promoted on the spot to the rank of detective, a happy climax to a bizarre story. The arrests were carried out on February 16th, just days before Malcolm X was assassinated. And this is very significant, Reggie Wood, as you know, this um, so-called uh, Statue yes. of Liberty plot, because these men were, who were arrested were the security team of Malcolm X, meaning he wouldn't have them there February 21st, a few days later when he was assassinated. That, that's correct. That's correct. Um, as we were doing our research, my research assistant, uh, Lizette Salado, um, really helped me put the pieces together. Uh, we whiteboarded everything that Ray said and, and attempted to connect it to facts that the FBI had released and, and that historians had, had pulled out. And we worked closely with some historians to try to um, corroborate the information that was there. And once we were able to do that, we were able to present that information to Mr. Crump and, and show that this was a legitimate uh, situation that needed to be brought to light. Now, in the 2015 article in The Guardian, historian Garrett Felber reveals notes written by the late Japanese-American activist Yuri Kochiyama. At a meeting held in 1965, uh, she identified Ray Wood to be at the scene of Malcolm X's assassination. She wrote, quote, Ray Woods, she wrote with an S, Ray Woods is said to have been seen also running out of all Audubon, was one of two picked up by police, was the second person running out, Yuri wrote. This appears to substantiate some of the accounts of a second man taken into police custody after the assassination. I spent many hours with Yuri Kochiyama talking to her to assist at a living facility at the end of her life in Oakland before she died. Um, can you talk about what happened at the assassination? Because Yuri is right here. She was very close to Malcolm X up on the stage with him. Um, as well at the end as after he was shot that your cousin ran out and was taken away by police yes what, what ray uh basically explained to me was that 
once he saw what was going on down and he realized what had actually happened after spending time with uh, Mr. Uh, Saeed and Mr. Bo, uh, he was there and he, 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 he reminisced or, or thought about the situation with him coming into the Audubon without being checked. He, he thought about the fact that those guys were in prison uh, as we spoke. And um, he decided he needed to get out of there and as he was leaving, some individuals that knew him from his other undercover work, and, and he had been exposed uh, somewhat from the bombing case, uh, saw him and they attempted to grab him. As they were uh, grabbing him, trying to restrain him, a police officer uh, intervened and, and grabbed Ray and took him into the police car. And, and from there, they took him to the, uh, the precinct and put him into a cell where he sat there for uh, three to four hours, not knowing what was going on. The only information that he had was listening to the chatter on the radio while they were transporting him to the uh, police station. And later that afternoon, the same two gentlemen that told him to go to the Audubon came and removed him from his cell and drove him back home and told him, quote, do not speak of this again, or you will face similar consequences. Did he know Gene Roberts, the other undercover officer, or at least one other that we know of who was there? No, no, he did not. He did not know him. He did not know he was an undercover. He assumed he was part of Malcolm X's team. So, Ben Crump, you ended the last segment uh, where we want to talk at the end of this segment, and that is the issue of what evidence is out there that the police or the FBI is hiding and what you are calling for. It's interesting that last week a judge ruled, a court ruled, that the disciplinary records of New York police going back for years must be released. De Blasio said they're releasing them, the mayor of New York, not clear if they're being released at this moment. Um, that's disciplinary records. Um, and the police unions have been fighting this tooth and nail. Um, what are you calling for in this case? Well, Amy, thank you for covering this important matter as well. And uh, to Reggie Wood, who has uh, put forth this dying declaration letter from his cousin, uh, Ray Wood, and documented all the corroborating evidence in the memoir that he and Lissette researched to show that everything in that letter is true. It is legitimate. And that's very important to help exonerate all those black people who were wrongfully convicted by Ray Wood's work. All those people who have been conspired against by the NYPD and the FBI, uh, whether that be Walter Bowe, Khalid Saeed, uh, whether it be uh, Thomas Johnson, who was picked up, who wasn't even at the Audubon ballroom, but to ensure that Ray's cover would not be blown, was arrested and served almost three decades in prison for a crime of uh, killing Malcolm X that they all knew he did not do. And also, Tupac Shakur's mother, Fanny Shakur, part of the Panther 21, 
who Ray Wood testified against, saying that they uh, tried to blow up New York monuments, and therefore, quite literally, she was in prison when she had her prince, Tupac Shakur, because of NYPD and the FBI were conspiring to wrongfully convict them. And as Ray Wood said in his letter, their job was to discredit civil rights organizations and black leaders. And that's why we're calling for a Malcolm X commission to be convened by the United States Congress. So his daughters, but also the people who was affected by these felonious actions of NYPD and the FBI to target black people can be exposed because, Amy, the past is prolonged. As Reggie Wood and I have often taught, the same way they targeted Malcolm X for saying that black people deserve equality by any means necessary, they are targeting young Black Lives Matter activists today, laboring them as black identity extremists. And so we need to have our federal government be held to account for trying to stop black people from exercising their First Amendment rights, but more importantly, for being able to declare that black lives matter over and over again. Kashia, the overshadowing event, the 88th Surah, al the overshadowing event. From the Mecca period revealed most probably about the middle of the Mecca period. This surah derives its title from the participle noun al in the first verse. Let us begin. In the name of God, the most gracious, the dispenser of grace. Has there come unto thee the tiding of the overshadowing event? Some faces will on that day be downcast toiling under burdens of sin, worn out by fear. About to enter a glowing fire. given to drink from a boiling spring. No food for them, save the bitterness of dry thorns, which gives no strength and neither stills hunger. And 
Some faces will on that day shine with bliss. Well pleased with the fruit of their striving in a garden sublime wherein thou wilt hear no empty talk. Countless springs will flow therein and there will be thrones of happiness raised high and goblets placed readily and cushions ranged and carpets spread out. Do then they who deny resurrection never gaze at the clouds pregnant with water and observe how they are created. And at the sky, how it raised, how it is raised aloft. And at the mountains, how firmly they are reared. And at the earth, how it is spread out. And so, O Prophet, exhort them. Thy task is only to exhort. Thou canst not compel them to believe. However, as for him who turns away, being bent on denying the truth, him will God cause to suffer the greatest suffering in the life to come. For Behold, unto us will be their return. And fairly it is for us to call them to account. of this surah 
the tenth in the order of revelation is based on the mention of the daybreak in the first verse. In the name of God, the most gracious, the dispenser of grace, consider the daybreak and the ten nights. Consider the multiple and the one. Consider the night as it runs its course. Considering all this, could there be to anyone endowed with reason a more solemn evidence of the truth? (laughs) Art thou not aware of how Thy sustainer has dealt with the tribe of Ad, Ad, the people of Iram, I-R-A-M, the many pillared, the like of whom has never been reared in all the land and with the tribe of Thamud, who hollowed out rocks in the valley, and with Pharaoh of the many tent poles, (laughs) it was they who transgressed all bounds of equity, all over their lands and brought about great corruption therein. And therefore thy sustainer let loose upon them a scourge, scourge of suffering. For verily the sustain thy sustainer is ever on the watch. But as for man, whenever his sustainer tries him by his generosity and by letting him enjoy a life of ease, he says, My sustainer has been justly generous towards me. Whereas, whenever he tries him by straightening his means of livelihood, he says, My sustainer has disgraced me. But nay, nay, O men, consider all that you do and fail to do. You are not generous towards the orphan, and you do not urge 
one another to feed the needy, and you devour the inheritance of others with devouring greed, and you love wealth with boundless love. judgment day when the earth is crushed with crushing upon crushing and the majesty of thy sustainer stands revealed as well as the true nature of the angels rank up on rank and on that day hell will be brought within sight on that day man will remember all that he did and failed to do, but what will that remembrance avail him? He will say, Oh, would that I had provoked beforehand for my life to come. Oh, would that I had provided beforehand for my life to come for none can make suffer as he will make suffer the sinners on that day and none can blind with bonds like his and none can bind with bonds like his. But unto the righteous God will say, O thou human being that has attained to inner peace, Return thou unto thy sustainer, well pleased and pleasing him. Enter then together with my other true servants. Yea, enter thou. My paradise.
podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Theodora Ludludis and Giles Gear, and on Twitter, Sophie Coe.